As you guys know, we have been studying the life of Jesus, asking the question, who is the real Jesus? And um, I think, you know, as we think about this, one of the things that's important to, um, to remember is often your starting point has a lot to do with where you end up. And a lot of people, I think, kind of just imagine what God should be like and then try to squeeze Jesus into that mold. Um, I, I, I kind of run into that often. I'll be talking to people and they'll say, well, you know, my Jesus isn't like that. Um, I, I think that one of the things you need to understand when you come and look at the four Gospels is that Jesus presented to these monotheistic Jewish, Jew, um, Jewish men who were his friends, who he hung out with for three years, he presented them with such a conundrum that they really had to come up with new categories to make sense of what they'd seen. And I, I think that that's important always to remember as we're going to look tonight at a passage in John chapter 6 that I think uh, brings this out very well. N.T. Wright, who is one of the great New Testament scholars of our era, maybe one of the, the greatest um, is talking about this very point in one of his books. He's talking about how so many people kind of start out with this idea of God and then try to fit Jesus into it. And, and here's what he says. He says, if you start with the deist God and the reductionist Jesus, like a Jesus who's just a, a Marxist or Jesus, you know, who's just, you know, a judge or a good teacher, that's what he means by the reductionist Jesus, um, then the Gospels are never going to quite fit. But then they were never designed to. He says, likewise, if you start with the New Age, gods from below, or humans that kind of evolve or ascend to become gods, or for that matter, the gods of ancient paganism, and ask what would happen if such a god were to become human, you would end up with a figure very different from the one in the Gospels. You know what he's saying? If you start with a preconceived idea of God and then imagine what that God would be like if he became human and dwelt among us, N.T. Wright's saying you would end up with a figure very different from the one in the Gospels. But, he says, if you start with the God of the Exodus, of Isaiah, of creation and covenant, the God of the Psalms, and ask what that God might be like were he to become human, you will find that he might look very much like Jesus of Nazareth, and perhaps never more so than when he dies on a Roman cross. Start with the real, historical, earthly Jesus, and your God will come running down the road to meet you, deeply attractive, deeply preachable, deeply challenging in his transforming embrace. That, for me, he says, is the theological significance of the earthly Jesus, and the reason that we need to look at these stories in the Gospels from people who met Jesus and were with him and tried to explain what they had seen and heard. So the story tonight, I'm not going to be able to read all of John chapter 6. It's a long chapter, and I'm going to think that a lot of you know about this story where Jesus fed 5,000 people. Remember, he was out preaching, and the people were there all day, and the disciples were like, you know, what are we going to do? Like, we've got to feed them, and Jesus is like, okay, good, feed them. Sounds good. And they're like, uh, we don't have any food. 
And they go, well, go see what you can find. And they find a boy, you're right, who has like five fish and a few loaves. And um, Jesus multiplies the food and feeds the 5,000. They gather up baskets of leftovers and everybody has their fill. After that is where we're going to pick up the story. Because right after that, Jesus basically gets in a boat and goes to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And then the disciples kind of walk around. And by the time they get over there to where Jesus is, we pick up the story in verse 25 of John chapter 6. When they found him, that means when the disciples found Jesus on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, What must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, What sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it's my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away, for I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who has sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. At this, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Part of their grumbling is because he said, I am, which is the name God said was his name. I am that I am. So they're kind of freaking out. I think I misspoke earlier, by the way. I said that it was his disciples that followed him. It was his disciples and the crowd who'd been fed. Okay, so verse 42. Then they said, is this not Jesus, talking among themselves here, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know, how could he now say I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. 
Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of God and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down for heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Let me pray and then we'll unpack this story. Lord, we do thank you that you sent the true bread from heaven. And even now, Lord, as we dig into this story, may we feast. May we feast. Feed us now. We're hungry people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I do not have time to explain every verse, even in the part of John chapter 6 that I read. But here's how I want to attack this passage tonight. Um, The first is Jesus claims to be the bread of life. And we need to understand the significance of that. Thus, we're going to have to talk about how God has been teaching his people for a long time about their need for bread and how he longs to feed them. So that's the first thing. What does it mean that Jesus claims to be the bread of life? Particularly, how does that connect with the rest of the story that God has been telling his people for a long time? And then we're going to look at this idea that Jesus is the one who requires us to invent new categories because the old ones no longer fit. And then finally, Jesus is the one who drives away his fans and frustrates his own disciples. That's what we're going to talk about tonight. It's a fascinating story, right? He, he has the crowd. You see this with Jesus a lot. He gets the crowd and then he drives the crowd away. <laughs> but before we get to that, before we get to that, let's talk about this idea of bread, right? Remember the role of bread in the Bible story. Here's the basic point. Our Father loves to feed us. Think about the way bread and feeding go all through the Bible story. Because I really do think it's important you understand that there's one storyline to the Bible. All the little stories uh, find a place in this big overarching story, right? And sometimes it's really important to kind of zoom out and see that. So think about it. God creates mankind and puts them in a garden filled with good food. 
Now, you might just take that for granted, but if you lived among the Canaanites, that would have been a shocking story. Do you know why? Because the Canaanite myths about the creation all have the gods creating mankind not to feed them, but to be food for the gods. The Canaanite creation myths regularly talk about how the gods create mankind to be food for the gods. But the contrast in the Bible story couldn't be more stark. God creates human beings to be in a rich, intimate relationship with them, and he puts them in a garden filled with good food. But mankind refused to eat what God had offered. I don't know, maybe you've been that kind of kid. (laughs) I know as a parent, you know how frustrating that can be when your kids refuse to eat what you prepared for them. And I don't know if you've ever thought about the fall that way. God gives them a rich banquet and they refuse to eat what's been offered. And it's not just that they won't eat the food that's been made. To refuse to eat what's been offered is also to reject intimacy and relationship with God. Because intimacy in the Bible is always formed around eating and feasting. So mankind refuses to eat what God offers, yet... The story goes on. God gives his people bread again, called manna, in the desert, in spite of the grumbling of his people. And that's what's remarkable to see. God's people are in the desert after they've been enslaved in Egypt. God delivers them, and then he puts them on this journey for 40 years, kind of wandering around so that he can teach them what it means to really trust him. And he gives them this manna, this food from heaven, this bread from heaven, in the midst of them grumbling about how he's brought them out to the desert to kill them. It's remarkable. Do you know what manna means? The word manna literally means, what is it? The word manna literally means, what is it? God brings them in the desert. They're like, we have no food. And God says, here's food. They don't even know Like, they have no category for it, so they literally name it, what is it? And so often, an experience with the real God leaves you, like, wondering what in the world just happened. I don't even have categories to explain this. So God tells them that he is going to feed them, and he tells them in Deuteronomy chapter 8 that the point of the wandering was so that he could make them hungry, so that they could be fed by him, with this bread that neither they nor their fathers had known, this miraculous bread. And he says he did that so that they could learn that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Bread is at the heart of Israel's worship as well. And this makes sense because food and intimacy go together. And one of the most important things for us to understand is that God does not create people just to be his little worker bees. He creates people so that he can sit down and have a long, wonderful meal with them. Rich relationship. Israel, you remember, or maybe you don't know this, but Israel was commanded to put a jar of manna inside the Ark of the Covenant. There were different things that Israel was supposed to put in the Ark of the Covenant, like their copy of the Ten Commandments. You know, the Ten Commandments were on two two stones, right? One for God and one for... Um, for Israel, uh, not five on one and five on the other, like in the movie. Sorry, that's not actually what it was. Um, it was like a contract, and each group gets, each party to the contract gets a copy. 
Okay, so they put that in there, but they also put the staff that God had given Moses that he used, but they put manna in there. Manna is inside the Ark of the Covenant to help them remember that God was trustworthy and faithful. That's what it says in Exodus 16.33. The manna was in the Ark so that they could remember God was trustworthy and faithful. And every Sabbath, every, every worship day, there were 12 loaves of bread baked and used in the worship service. This is in Leviticus 24. Every Sabbath, 12 delicious loaves of bread were to be put in God's presence, set out before him in the midst of a table of pure gold, and the priests were to sit and feast and gorge on the bread as the representative of all God's people. Worship involved the priests sitting at this table of gold, gorging themselves on 12 delicious loaves of bread. God is teaching his people that worship with me, relationship with me is about feasting. Feasting, right? And Jesus says, I am the bread. I am the fulfillment of all that God has taught about bread. And think about it. He was literally born in a feeding trough. You know, that's what a manger is. The bread of heaven was born in a feeding trough. And do you know what the city of Bethlehem means? Beth means city. Le means of. Ham means bread. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the, the house of bread. And he proclaims himself here, the true bread from heaven, after feeding 5,000 people. It seems like he goes really out of his way to make this point, doesn't he? And, and, and notice this. Friends, God doesn't just drop us a few crumbs. God feeds us the true bread from heaven in a lavish feast to which all other feasts aspire and which we whet our appetite for as Christians whenever we feast by faith in the Lord's Supper. So bread is a big deal and God feeding us is a big deal. And if you don't understand feeding as being central to what a relationship with God is about, you really probably have a pretty kind of shriveled up little idea of Christianity. One that really probably can't bring much joy. Yet, Jesus is a very unlikely candidate for being the bread of life. I, I mean, look at this. The, the, the people, they can't get their head around the idea that he can be the bread of life. They can't imagine the possibility that he might be more than they've experienced so far. Even though he just fed 5,000 people, they think they know where he came from and they think they've got him figured out. You see that? See, Jesus is the one who requires us to invent new categories, but the people are really resistant to that. Look at like verse 26. Jesus said, I tell you, you're looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. You're not really interested in who I am, or the, the, even that this was a sign that points to who I am. You just want what I can do for you. And then he tells them, don't work for food that spoils, right? They're trying to compare him to Moses. Well, we know Moses gave us bread, so I guess you're like Moses. He's like, no, I know that's your category. Because Moses gave you bread. Actually, people, 
Moses didn't give you the bread. God gave you the bread. And he's giving you the bread again. I'm so much greater than Moses. I am the bread. Not just the instrument through whom God is going to feed you. I'm the meal. I'm it, right? Now, I love this. I don't want to pass this by. In verse 27 and 28. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. This bread has to be given to you. You can't earn it. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? That's a pretty important question, isn't it? Maybe you wonder about that question. What is it that I need to do for God? Well, here's what Jesus says. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. You don't work for this bread. You don't work for this bread. Eating this bread is equated with believing his words. This is why in the Lord's Supper at church, uh, I don't know if it's in every church that that some of y'all may go to, but in the Presbyterian church, we try to make this point very often that the sacraments are the gospel preached in a picture. That the same way we feed on Christ by faith in the sacraments, we feed on him by faith when we read the word. We need to believe on the one he has sent, and that is God's work as he goes on and talks about being drawn and and God's power in doing that, right? So Jesus is the true bread. And if Jesus is the true bread, that is the fulfillment of everything God's been teaching his people about bread, then it changes how we think about the work that God requires. Grace is not something we earn. Don't settle for other breads that don't fill you up. You know, one of my favorite passages in Isaiah chapter 44, where God is talking about worshiping other idols that are less than God. Things that we think will bring peace and happiness, safety and security. And you know what God says about the one who is worshiping idols? It says that he feeds on ashes. What do you think it's like to feed on ashes? I can't imagine that it's very nutritious or that it makes you feel full. It probably just makes you feel more, you know, hungry. Certainly would make me want to drink, (laughs) you know, feeding on ashes. Where are you feeding on ashes tonight? Where are you feeding, gorging yourself on ashes, hoping that it will fill you up, that it will satisfy, and yet it only makes you more hungry? Jesus is the true bread. He's not a little spice that you add to your life. He is life itself. God is very intentional in using this image of Jesus, the bread of life, because bread is basic. It's basic. It's the thing we all need. It's not just a little spice that you add to this life of fulfillment that you already have right? Trying to have a little Jesus to go along with all the things that you're really working for 
will never give you a true taste of who he is. He's the bread or he's nothing. He's not merely hellfire insurance or an add-on to your life. He's the bread, the true bread. And a Christian is one who eats what God serves. Sometimes we don't want what God wants to serve. Uh, the poet R.S. Thomas put it this way. I love this, this little couplet. He says, there are other people in the world sitting at table contented, though the broken body and the shed blood are not on the menu. Is that you? Let me say that again. There are other people in the world sitting at table contented, though the broken body and the shed blood are not on the menu. Oh, may we never be the kind of people who are content when the shed blood and the broken body are not on the menu. Because that's what we need. Jesus is the true bread. And it expands and blows up the categories. He's not a little, a little helper. He's not our counselor. He is what we need for basic sustenance. And he's been trying to teach his people that for a very long time. But it seems that we don't really want that kind of bread. Because Jesus becomes the one here who drives away his fans and frustrates his own disciples, right? He's got the crowd. He's got the crowd. But he wants more than that. He, he, he starts saying some weird stuff. You can see around verse 36, verse 30, 37, he starts talking about all those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I'll never drive away, for I have come down from heaven. And they're like, whoa, whoa we know where you came from. Like, you're Mary and Joseph's son. Again, they need their categories blown up. They can't imagine that he's all they need. They're, they're still thinking of him too narrowly. And, and they begin to grumble and they begin to, to say, you know, how can he, you know, feed us, right? Is he better than Moses? No. So they, they, they're kind of arguing about this, right? And then he ratchets up the tension further and says, you have to eat my flesh. Now, let me tell you, the Romans had some crazy stuff they were into, but they were not cannibals. They thought cannibalism was absolutely abhorrent. Do you actually know one of the charges against Christians in the early days, um, and one of the things that got them killed was the charge that they were cannibals? Because they were always talking about eating the body and drinking the blood of Jesus. And actually in the early church, when they were ready to take communion, they would actually ask all the unbelievers to leave. And so the, the unbelievers were like, what's going on in there? And they began to circulate the rumor that the Christians were cannibals. I'm telling you, being a Christian sometimes means new categories, right? And Jesus knows that this is going to freak them out. He knows it's going to freak them out. But he says it anyway. And when they're confused, he keeps driving it because they have got to have a revolution in their understanding 
of who Jesus is and what what they need. He is not content to just have him follow him around for a free lunch. Because that would be cruel. For him to let these people just follow him around just because their stomachs were full and never challenge them with the revolution that they need. It would be cruel. And it would be cruel of God to let you just be his fan and never say hard things to you. God is not afraid to say hard things to you. Jesus is not, a hard, is not afraid to say hard things to us, right? And, and I love this honest confession of Peter because it doesn't just drive the, some of the crowd away. It, it completely like frustrates his disciples. I, I know that the, the emotion is you kind of have to, to read into the text, but that's how I hear it. When Jesus says, what about you? He says to the twelve. Do you want to leave too? And and the way I see this, I I, I can hear Peter saying, yeah, kind of, but where else are we going to go? It's like, we don't really have a choice, but this isn't fun anymore. And that's just the beginning. It's just the beginning. Because following Jesus isn't always fun. But if he's the true bread from heaven... We have to follow him. There's life nowhere else. You see what Peter says? Peter's testimony is what I proclaim to you tonight. Where else can you go? No one else has the words of life. Nowhere else can you feast on the bread of heaven. He's hard to follow. But there's life nowhere else. There's life nowhere else. And he loves us too much to be content with having merely fans who follow him for what he can give them. If that's where you are, don't stay there. I know it's, it's scary, but trust the one who went to the cross for us. Trust him. Trust him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do thank you. And we pray, Lord, that we could feast on you. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder, can I close with a poem? And then we'll do the doxology. This is one of my absolute favorite poems. And I actually put it in the various group me groups so you can go look it up later. It's by George Herbert. He's an English uh, poet who lived uh, 1593 to 1633. So the language is a little archaic, right? I'm going to read it, but you probably will have to read it and sit in it a little bit. But this is such a powerful, I think, um, excuse me, expression of what I've been talking about tonight. Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. 
I, the unkind, ungrateful? Ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand, and smiling did reply, Who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame? My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. Christians are those who eat what God has served. And he insists upon it. <laughs>